right. 14th episode of Church History. Like I said, I think last time we did like right at 52. Well, you're not going to get through that fast this time. We're moving a little more slowly. Maybe it's because I've gotten older. Or I don't know, but uh, we're moving a little more slowly. As we mentioned last time, if uh, you can remember last time, um, we mentioned that uh, the next subject in our study would be that of the issue of <clears throat> persecution, and especially uh, that this would be rather relevant to our day. Not only do we have uh, a long history of persecution in the church, we have uh, many believers experiencing persecution today. Um, obviously, in the outward form, we, we have uh, persecution of Christians in horrific places like uh, North Korea, uh, in certain sections of China. Um, it's interesting, Chinese persecution is very similar to uh, Roman persecution. It sort of depends on who's in charge in what area and uh, what day of the year it is. Uh, very similar along those lines. But obviously there's uh, tremendous persecution of Christians in Muslim lands. Uh, again, in some Muslim lands, there's minimal persecution, and others uh, much more. Sometimes in places like Pakistan, it depends on which province you're in. Um, that has always been sort of the history of persecution. But we also see new kinds of persecution in our day, uh, legal persecution, um, persecution based upon what I would call societal heresy, uh, where secularism becomes the de facto religion of the society. Um, and so it was a fascinating thing to see pictures of police. And this wasn't Christian persecution. It was actually, well, to be honest with you, a persecution of Muslims. Uh, in France, did you see the pictures a few weeks ago? Of French police on French beaches uh, demanding that Muslim women remove the uh, burkini uh, which is basically a burqa uh, for going to the beach in. So obviously it covers everything, but uh, not you know enough to allow for air to get through or something, so you're not broiling. Um, <clears throat> and uh, they were they had passed laws, and it had nothing to do with security. It had nothing to do with well, we want to make sure we can see faces. You're not hiding it. No, no, no. It was it, France is a secular state. And they, they don't just say that, they, they say it outwardly, in print. Um, you go back to Robespierre and the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror and um, stuff that wasn't even taught very well when I was in school, and I don't think almost anybody today has a clue. Uh, we'll have to have uh, our, our resident historian do a, uh, a uh, thing on the uh, French Revolution sometime. I'm not sure how much time you spent on that, but oh my goodness. Um, 52 I'm sorry? 52 episodes. 52 episodes on the French Revolution, yeah, okay. And the, the reign of terror and Robespierre, who lost his head to his own movement. But um, uh, the, the, let's just say that, that secularism, once it is given unfettered authority, it's a frightening thing. And uh, unfortunately, most 
young people, well, most people in our society don't seem to get that anymore and don't understand that and are ignoring history. But anyway, uh, it's a relevant subject. And as we see strong movements in our own society for the criminalization um, of thought, uh, the criminalization of holding to perspectives that do not toe the line with the worldview of the uh, elite in society. Uh, we have much to learn from the fact that the history of the true followers of Jesus Christ has been a history of persecution. And when you read the Gospels, it's exactly what Jesus said it was going to be. It, it's, it's amazing how often we're like, oh, we just can't believe this is happening. And when, when you have these long sections of, of Scripture saying, uh, do not marvel, do not be surprised that the world hates you. It hated me first. And I, I guess we just we don't want to hear those things or remember those things or whatever else it might be. And so there's much to be learned. We're not the first uh, Christians to face the subject. Um, the fact that there were different kinds of persecution uh, in the early church and that there are going to be different kind there are different kinds of persecution today there will be increasingly in my opinion different kinds of persecution that we ourselves will be facing um, very important to realize this and to recognize this and maybe something we can learn like I said when we started church history it's the one time we can sort of hold a mirror up to ourselves uh, we can ask all right if we believe Christ promised he's going to build his church, there have been people with the scriptures and the spirit of God in the past. How did they, uh, how did they handle these things? Um, and we can learn from their mistakes, uh, as well as maybe being challenged to go, well, if we think they're mistaken, why do we think they're mistaken? And how could we do better? These are some of the questions that we would have. And so, in essence, as you look at the history of the church from the time of Christ onward, from A.D. 30 to A.D. 250, what you have is local, uh, occasional persecution. And it can take different types. You, at first, in those places where uh, the Jews have authority, you have persecution from Jewish individuals, and so or Jewish, uh, the Jewish hierarchy. And so you have a Saul of Tarsus, and you have... Uh, the stoning of Stephen, and you have the, the forbidding by the Sanhedrin of, of anyone to speak in Jesus' name and, and things like that. And then once the Romans get a clue, uh, somewhere around the year 50, uh, that this Christian movement is different from uh, Orthodox Judaism, uh, then you start getting Roman persecution as well. Up until that point, you even see in Acts where some of the Roman rulers are like, eh, this is, don't, don't, don't bring this before me. This is some type of argument amongst you all. You all go argue about these things someplace else. And they sort of saw Judaism and Christianity. Christianity is just a little sect, a new sect of Judaism. And, and there had already been developed an understanding uh, between Judaism and the Romans uh, concerning what they could and could not do. And so once that protection of being a Jewish sect was removed, then Christianity was exposed to the full fury of the Roman Empire. But again, um, that persecution waxed and waned 
uh, and was very frequently very much localized. And so there was a general statement from the leadership of the Roman state from about 50 onwards, and especially after Nero, uh, that Christianity was a religio illicita. Religio illicita, an illicit, illegal religious gathering. Now, uh, a Notre Dame scholar uh, about three years ago, well, maybe two years ago, put out a book basically questioning the reality of Christian persecution. It's, uh, she wrote her book, uh, you know, I read it as soon as it came out, and I didn't spend much time on it because anybody who reads it realizes what she's done is she's redefined what persecution is. Um, instead of dealing with it from a meaningful historical perspective, she just redefined persecution that way, defined it out of existence. Um, but there's a tremendous amount of evidence of this, not just from Christian sources, but from non-Christian sources as well. And we know that, that during periods of time, uh, for example, toward the end of the second century, uh, around 180-ish uh, in Lyon, uh, there was a intensification of persecution at that particular time, and you would have, uh, just as you had in the uh, martyrdom of uh, Polycarp and Ignatius, uh, you have uh, people being uh, burned or beheaded or uh, fed to the lions uh, as sport and game, uh, but this would happen in a particular area, primarily under the direction of a particular uh, person in authority over a certain region. And so you might have grave persecution here in the very next principality or the next province, uh, no persecution at all or minimal persecution. Uh, and two provinces over, you might be able to build a church building um, and, and have decades of relative peace. But it was always hanging over the church that if someone gets into power in this area, uh, all of this could change if we, you know, both both directions, you know. You'd be praying, if you're under persecution, that someone else would get in power, and then things would relax for a while. And, and the other way, if you're not under persecution, you're always worrying that someone's going to get into power who's going to start persecuting you. So it's always sort of like the sword hanging over the head um, until A.D. 250, and that's when uh, the persecution becomes empire-wide under Decius, and uh, this continues for uh, a little over 60 years. And so for about six decades, there is a concerted empire-wide emphasis upon uh, trying to stamp out uh, the Christian religion. And uh, this all comes to an end in what's called the Peace of the Church in AD 313. And so let's uh, start with uh, the first major Roman persecutor and that is the Emperor Nero. Uh, we've all heard of Nero. Uh, he reigns from 54 to 68. And you've heard about Nero fiddling while Rome burned. Well, uh, between July 18th and the 25th, and then starting again on the 26th through the 29th, See, fires in the olden, olden day were not a couple hours. Uh, in a, in a built-up city-type situation, they could be uh, 
week-long conflagrations, if you can imagine what that looked like and smelled like and everything else. Uh, the Great Fire of July uh, 18th through the 25th and 26th through the 29th. And look at that. I somehow managed to delete what year it was. I think it was around 64? 64 or 65, somewhere around there. I'll have to look it up. For some reason, it, I somehow deleted it out of my notes. Um, Ten of Rome's 14 sections were gutted. So can you imagine? Um, now, got to realize, we think of Rome, and for some reason, because of its centrality and things like that, we think it was you know, bigger than Phoenix or something like that. That's, that's not the case. Um, especially land-wise, Phoenix is just massive. I mean, you can start out the far side of Sun City West on a freeway at 65 miles an hour and, and an hour and 20 minutes be in the Southeast Valley and you're still in the quote-unquote Phoenix area. It's ridiculous. Um, that, that would have been a country in this day, not a, not a, not a city. Um, <clears throat> so obviously things were considerably more condensed and packed in in ancient Rome and everybody knew uh, that Nero had wanted to do major remodeling of, of Rome and it just so happened that the sections of Rome that burned were the very sections that Nero wanted to burn and it's it's pretty obvious historically that Nero was behind it um, or at the very least didn't care that it happened and sort of found it to be fortuitous. But uh, when the, the fire takes place, there's obviously a huge outcry from the people who lose everything, as well as you know, the, the many thousands of casualties that would take place as well in a situation like that. And so, uh, as is well known, he uh, blamed it upon the Christians. Now, who could get away with something like that? Uh, well, sadly, uh, politics has been politics for a long, long time. And uh, truthfulness in political discourse has always been the rarity, not the norm. And uh, scapegoating others, nothing new. Nothing new. And so, why would the Christians, however, uh, be, a, be a good group to blame? Well, because their beliefs were so reprehensible to the Roman people. Why, would they, why were they reprehensible? Uh, they, wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't swear to the genius of Caesar. They wouldn't say Kaiser Kurios. They were called atheists. They're called atheists not, beca not because of the way we use the term today, that there is no God at all, uh, but because they said the gods did not exist. There is only one God. And yeah, the Jews were like that too, but the Jews have been around a long time and had sort of become, they become accustomed. There were things being whispered about these Christians. Um, they had a love feast, the agape feast, and they didn't let other people participate in this. So obviously it became real easy to make allegations of sexual impropriety. Something was going on in those secret meetings. And they also talked about eating the body of their God. And that's really like cannibalism. That's weird. And so it's real easy to marginalize people you don't know anything about, believe things about them that 
might or might not be true, but in all probability aren't, and we should probably know that, but hey, that's how it works. And so uh, Nero blames this strange new cult, uh, which is how it was viewed not only by the Romans, but by the Jews as well, uh, for starting these fires. Why? Who knows? But political lies have never needed to have a real basis in truth anywhere. Um, and so the there is a persecution that begins. Nero himself was quite simply uh, insane. I mean, I think any, any analysis of Nero has to come to that conclusion. Um, he killed his, uh, his brother. Uh, he killed his uh, mother. Uh, he killed uh, two wives. Uh, he killed the very famous writer and, I don't know how you describe Seneca. Um, he wrote on many, many subjects, but he killed Seneca. Uh, and then, at the ripe old age of 32 years of age, he killed himself. Um, so, Nero is, is obviously uh, loonier than, than can be, but it was quickly suspected Nero was behind the fires uh, so he accused the Christians. That begins the persecution. Uh, Peter and pos possibly Paul died in this persecution. We, we don't know, but the, the dates seem to line up about right uh, for that taking place, which took place in the region of Rome. Some Christians theorized that Nero was the beast. Uh, there, I've heard of various ways of adding his name up to 666 or 616. I've heard both. Uh, most of you are probably aware that 616 is the, one of the early textual variants of the number of the beast in Revelation chapter 13. Um, it is, uh, is, the story is told, and it, it doesn't seem to be just by Christians, but by other sources as well, that uh, he was so evil uh, that he would have, that he was known to once uh, to have had a garden party and to light the party for his guests in the gardens, uh, he took uh, Christians and wrapped them in animal skins and uh, had them fixed to poles and then lit on fire. Uh, and so their, their burning carcasses uh, in the animal skins would provide the light as he would ride his chariot uh, through, his, through the garden amongst his guests with bits and pieces of human body falling around him. Uh, he was, yeah. It, what's amazing to me, to be honest, when you look at uh, many of the, um, of the emperors, is how long it took for Rome to fall. It's not, it, it, it's, you know, things moved much more slowly in the ancient world than they do today. Um, part of it's simply the reality of communication. Uh, travel and communication. We can travel so much faster now uh, than, than in the past, and we can communicate with so many more people. Ideas can be promulgated so much more quickly uh, than they could in the past uh, that it's, it's amazing, given the level of corruption, that the empire lasted as long as it did. Now, it was a, it was a, it was a clear decline 
um, from this time period forward, definitely, but still lasted a number of hundreds of years. You would not expect that today. Uh, in, in today's world, things change much more quickly, I think, than they did in the past. So Nero begins things, but it's a, it's a localized thing, and in, and in fact, there really isn't much more official, as in from the emperor persecution until Domitian, uh, who reigns from 81 to 96. So there's about a 15-year uh, gap there. Uh, but Domitian went to new heights in promoting the imperial cult with himself as the head. Uh, he demanded that he be confessed as lord and god of all who were under the control of the Roman Empire. Um, interestingly enough, uh, that's a Granville Sharp construction, and it's used of uh, uh, Jesus in 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, uh, maybe as a response to that, if Peter lived longer than that, who knows? Uh, we don't know when Peter died uh, or when Paul died. It's, it's all theoretical as far as you know. tradition might say this happened at such and such time, who knows? Um, all were made to swear the oath by the genius of the emperor. He had statues of himself placed in many temples throughout the empire. Uh, persecution broke out in many places, for both Jews and Christians could not offer the demanded sacrifice. John's exile to Patmos most likely took place at this time. And so, as the imperial cult uh, grows, as there is a more and more of a focus upon the emperor individually, the role of the Senate diminishes, et cetera, et cetera, um, then you know, the state is basically saying there, there can be no compromise here. If we are going to remain the great empire that we are, uh, then we, we need to be united in our um, solidarity in uh, what, what brings us together and gives us cohesion, and that is found in the person of the emperor. Uh, we go through history and we find this happens all the time. Uh, so possibly at this time period, a lot of people, you know, again, we don't have dates. There are some people who believe all the, all the New Testament books were pre-70. There are some who believe all the Gospels were. Even John was. But most scholars would date at least the, the Revelation right at this time period. And, and certainly the, the, the historical interpretation has been that uh, John was on the Isle of Patmos in exile uh, when he received that, and that that would have taken place during this particular uh, time uh, period. Uh, after Domitian, we have Trajan. He was less fanatical than Domitian had been. Um, still, he was still under Trajan. Uh, the profession of Christianity was a uh, capital offense. Uh, there are letters and discussions uh, from around this time period uh, about what to do in regards to people being accused of being Christians. Um, obviously, it would be a very useful thing politically. Um, well, we actually, have, we actually have a very close parallel uh, today. Uh, we know that in Pakistan today, one of the most uh, common ways that uh, Muslims uh, take advantage of Christians uh, let's say you have a neighbor who's a Christian and you've got a dispute over the boundary marker between your, your property. All you have to do is threaten to say that you heard that the Christian uh, profane Muhammad uh, burned the Quran, whatever else, and that person 
may well find themselves under a pile of rocks that has happened. Um, horrible uh, videos uh, exist of mobs uh, stoning even women uh, accused of uh, profaning the prophet or burning the Quran or whatever else it might be. Um, often Christians, sometimes not, sometimes Muslims. Uh, that type of accusation, especially if it happens to be made somewhere around Friday when everybody's getting out of the, the uh, mosque after the sermon and are all hyped up, uh, can result in, uh, in horrific uh, things. So uh, there's a lot of discussion about, well, how do we handle a Roman citizen who's accused by someone else of being a Christian? And, and basically the answer is, well, even by this point in time they had learned no true Christian will deny Christ. So if someone denies him and curses him, let him go. You know, if they're willing to offer the sacrifice, they're willing to, willing to deny Christ, curse Christ, no basis to the accusation because no Christian will do that. So even the Romans knew that uh, at this particular point in time, which is rather, rather interesting. So after Trajan, for about uh, 60 years, things just sort of go along as they, as they were with, again, some areas, there's, there's, there's more and more, Christianity continues to grow, so there's more and more resistance to it, as we'll see in, in people like Celsus and others when we look at the uh, apologists a little bit later on. But we're just looking at the Roman leadership right now. And so the next interesting person to look at is a fellow that you've heard of before called Marcus Aurelius, mm -hmm. uh, the Stoic Emperor, 161 to 180, uh, played so brilliantly in the movie Gladiator, even though they totally messed up all the history. Uh, it's still made for a great story, but it was, it was all fiction, actually. Hmm. Well, in the sense that, I mean, there was a Marcus Aurelius, and there was a General Maximus. Uh, they just never met because they weren't born, didn't live in the same century. <laughs> uh, so you just sort of, eh, it's just move history around a little bit to make it a little more interesting. And uh, so Marcus Aurelius, the Stoic Emperor, uh, while persecution had been sporadic up to this time under Marcus Aurelius, it became more acute. Um, Anti-Christian literature began to uh, come out at this time, including, as I mentioned, Celsus's book, The True Doctrine, which really is the first published anti-Christian work. And it's funny to compare it um, with what is so often produced today. Um, a lot of the same stuff. Uh, very, very similar in its, uh, in its approach, its argumentation, uh, the existence of straw man argumentation, things like that. But you know, uh, the enemy is not all that imaginative. And, and uh, so Celsus, you know, a lot of mockery and, and uh, uh, that in, in included in it. And then, of course, for years, you have Christians writing responses uh, to, um, to Celsus. Uh, of course, you know, you write a book back then, and it's not like you, you then hit send and you post it on Facebook, and within a day, it's uh, got 3,000 shares and how many thousands of readers, um, things happen much more slowly. Uh, you might write a book 20 years after the original was written and it would still have a very relevant audience. Um, books today, if they're gonna last 20 years, are rare. 
Uh, and so much of what is written today, no one's going to have a clue about uh, 20 years from now. Things have changed greatly. Um, Marcus Aurelius, interestingly enough, proposed laws against evangelization. Hey, got to shut these Christians up. Uh, if, if we can't argue against their arguments, uh, or if there's just too many foolish people amongst us believe, to believe their arguments, uh, then we just need to say it. They can't, they can't say this stuff anymore. We will, we will limit their speech. Um, in 177, I mentioned this just a few moments ago, a great persecution broke out in Lyon, in Gaul. Uh, it was at this time that uh, Justin Martyr earned his last name. Uh, we'll talk about Justin Martyr a little bit later on, but um, he was not named Justin Martyr during his life for obvious reasons. <laughs> it was not... Can you imagine mom, uh, you know, names the kid prophetically? <laughs> this is, uh, we're going to call him Justin Martyr. Yeah, right, okay. Um, didn't, uh, didn't work out quite that way. Uh, this is the time period in which Justin Martyr earned his last name. Tertullian remarked sarcastically during this time period, if the Tiber rises too high or the Nile too low, the cry is, the Christians to the lion. All of them to a single lion? Hmm. Um, so the point being that uh, the Roman Empire was scapegoating Christians. Now, this is the only time in history that Christians have ever been scapegoated, right? Well, no. Um, I, none of us are being thrown to lions, uh, but I can think of a real obvious example of this in our own culture today. Um, it is. It has become a, a meme, a uh, a thing that you can watch on television and hear in the university classrooms. Um, that uh, the Christian view of homosexuality is responsible for all these terrible social ills that afflict the homosexual community. It's the Christian's fault. Uh, the idea that there might actually be something about that behavior that is self-destructive. You know, the fact that they have a 20 year less uh, lifespan. Can't look at that. No, it's all, it's all no, no, it's, it's all the Christian's fault. The Christian, it's all the Christian's fault. And it, it just is repeated so often that if you try to challenge it, well, you're a bigot, you're a homophobe, you're a hater, you have to be shut down. Uh, have you all, did y'all see the, um, the new thing on uh, YouTube, YouTube Heroes. Did y'all, have y'all seen this? I only, I only you, you've seen it? I only heard about it uh, this week. Uh, but um, there's a hue and cry about it. Maybe there'll be enough of a hue and cry about it that it won't happen, but um, they're, they're starting a program uh, uh, for people to basically uh, become the Nazi brown shirts. Um, you will get points for commenting on videos and helping people with videos, but also for flagging videos and finding inappropriate content on YouTube. And you actually will get points for flagging videos for being inappropriate. Uh, well, on what standard? Hmm, well, that's always the issue, isn't it? I've been pretty amazed. Um, Ever since I started talking about the Hebrew-Israelite thing, uh, 
I'm, I'm really surprised YouTube has been able to, to handle the load of uploaded videos of, uh, that basically have the title somewhere along the line, James White is Satan. You know, so that's in there somewhere. Uh, and all sorts of videos of me with horns, pitchforks, roasting in hell, 666 on my forehead. Uh, I mean, it's just unbelievable. You know, dozens of them a week. And uh, I guess I could really get lots of points, you know, for spending my days on YouTube flagging videos. I don't think they're going to be taking those down. But I could certainly see how Google slash YouTube um, would put an end to the dividing line where I'm talking about homosexuality or uh, the profaning of marriage or uh, Islam or any of those things. I could see all that happening. Um, I've said for a long time, eventually we're going to be pushed off into what I would call the Christian ghetto. Someone's going to get smart enough to start a Christian version of Facebook, call it something else, but it'll be similar. But it'll become an echo chamber. We're all talking to ourselves. Um, and then, unless Ted Cruz is successful in keeping the Obama administration from uh, doing the idiocy it's supposed to do in a matter of days uh, and turning the Internet over to the U.N., um, we know what the U.N. is going to do about things like this as well. Uh, so, nothing new. Uh, it's, uh, you know, scapegoating and that kind of thing. It's been happening for a long, 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 long time. And, uh, yeah, if the, if the Tiber rises too high, the Nile too low, the cry is the Christians to the lion. That will solve everything. Uh, after uh, Marcus Aurelius, we have Septimus Severus, 193 to 211, forbade all new conversions to Christianity in the year 202. Septimus Severus, 193 to 211, forbade all new conversions to Christianity. That always works. No, it doesn't. It was during his reign that Tertullian said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Uh, Origen, a man who we'll be talking about later on. Uh, Origen's father, Leonides, died a martyr in 202. Uh, Origen himself desired to follow his father in death. When his father left the home, Origen wanted to go with him to die with his father. But um, his mother, knowing how modest a young man Origen was, managed to keep it, him at home by hiding his clothes. So mom, mom was smart and said, I don't want to lose them both, so I'm going to hide Origen's clothes. And uh, that was the only way that he, uh, he didn't uh, die with his father Leonides in 202. When Severus died, persecution ceased, with one short exception from 235 to 238 for the next 50 years. So there's a period of relative uh, peace after Septimus Severus's death in 211. But it begins again under Decius. He was only emperor for a few years, 249 to 251. But Decius began true empire-wide persecution. He felt that Christian monotheism was the reason for the decline of the Roman Empire. The reason. So he ordered that all receive the libellus, the certificate that they had offered sacrifice to the emperor. So we have um, 
examples of the Libellus from history. Uh, we have copies of the Libellus. Um, it was a document that you would receive uh, when you offered the pinch of incense upon the altar to the emperor, swear by the genius of the emperor, uh, say Kaiser Kurios, and it was your documentation. And it would be what you would uh, utilize to demonstrate your faithfulness, your, um, your patriotism. I mean, this was, this, this was now a, a situation was you are a traitor to Rome. You're a traitor to your nation if your ultimate allegiance isn't to the nation, but to this Jesus character. Um, at, at this point, without any modifications or need for clarification, it is state versus church, it is state versus the faith, um, it is ultimate authorities straight on, straight up uh, under uh, Decius. And so, once again, I have read articles um, just in the past few years from individuals who argue that religion, and specifically monotheistic religion, is the primary problem uh, creating violence in the world today. Because polytheistic religion allows you know, paganism, polytheism, uh, mysticism, all these things allow, allow us all to put the same bumper sticker on our car that says coexist, right? You know, which makes everybody so much, so much kinder in traffic and, and makes, you know, it's just, it's just a wonderful thing when we all have the, the same coexist uh, sticker on our, on our car. And the argument really is, if, if you're a polytheist, then your God isn't the only God. And your God isn't even the main God. And there is no main God. And so as long as you can have polytheism, paganism, anything like that, then there's no ground for anybody to say, this is the truth. This is the one way. And you see, in their mind, they don't see any difference um, between us and our proclamation and the Taliban. Both are based upon the exact same error, and that is there's one God who has revealed one way, and all will be judged on the basis of this one truth. And so, from their perspective, a true cultural harmony Worldwide, global harmony. It doesn't matter about cultural harmony anymore. It's all one big world now. Uh, the only way that's ever going to happen is if we get rid of this foolishness regarding uh, monotheism and there being one truth, one objective truth, so on and so forth. Um, not new, but re, uh, retreaded and, and repackaged. Valerian, 253 to 260, continued Decius' policy of empire-wide persecution. Uh, clergy were ordered killed if they did not sacrifice. All right of Christian assembly was taken away under Valerian. Diocletian, 284 to 305, was the final persecuting emperor and the most fierce. 
He established a co-regency with Maximian in the east, Galerius in the central regions, and Constantius in the west. So what you have is sort of the attempted division of the empire into three sections with co-regencies, because it's easier to rule over a smaller area than a bigger area. Um, in, so you've got uh, Maximian is in the east, well, for you, east, um, Galerius in the central regions, Constantius in the west. Galerius was rabidly anti-Christian. In 303, Diocletian, with no small encouragement from Galerius, undertook to extinguish Christianity. He forbade all Christian worship. All Christian churches and books had to be destroyed. All clergy were arrested unless they sacrificed. For the next year, this was extended to all Christians. This lasted until 311, when Galerius, having fallen ill, rescinded the persecution and asked Christians to pray for his health. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> that, that happens when the body fails and you're about to croak. Um, it is during this time period then, um, just a brief number of months prior to my debate with Bart Ehrman uh, back in, what was that, 2009, I think, somewhere around there. Uh, an article came out, some uh, documents from Egypt had been translated, papyrus documents from Egypt had been translated, and one of them was a Roman government document which listed the items taken from a Christian church in Egypt uh, as a result of the application of these laws right at the beginning of the fourth century. And, you know, it listed various items, you know, a, a silver bowl, uh, this many of this, this many of that, that much money, et cetera, et cetera. And it also mentioned uh, the, the scroll, not the scrolls, but the books. And, you know, the Romans didn't necessarily know exactly what the Christian scriptures were all the time. Sometimes, you know, they might have confused Tertullian's writings for scripture or whatever, but they're basically looking for the Christian scriptures. And it listed, if I recall correctly, um, 300 books from this one, uh, this one church. Now, if we figure that minimally a half of those were actually the scriptures themselves, um, these were all burned. And it also mentioned that over 300 churches in Egypt uh, had been sacked by the Romans in that time period. So we're talking thousands and thousands of manuscripts. It, it's amazing that we have as many manuscripts as we have in light of the fact that during this time period, the Romans were specifically seeking to uh, destroy Christian manuscripts and obviously were successful in the vast majority of instances in, um, in so doing. So finally, Constantine comes to power in the West in 306. Uh, he attacked his rival, Maxentius, in Rome in 312. He defeats him in miraculous fashion, the Milvian Bridge, and in 313, Constantine issues the Edict of Toleration, which we call the Peace of the Church, the end of formal persecution, at least under the lands controlled by Constantine, uh, there's still about another year or so before that becomes uh, fully empire-wide. Uh, but that severest time of persecution is 250 to about 311, 313, depending on where, where you were. 
and um, that story about Constantine, I don't have time to go into it right now, I'll try to remember later on, but this is where allegedly Constantine has a vision of the cross in the sky and is told, in this sign, conquer, and so he has his soldiers put the cross and the shields, and Maxentius is in Rome, and, and he's, he's safe behind the Tiber River. All he's got to do is stay there, but for some crazy reason, he marches out to take on Constantine and is defeated at the Milvian Bridge, and uh, that's why it was considered miraculous. And this begins, truly, the very complicated uh, story of the interaction and connectedness of the state and church. Up to this point, it's been boom, ba, boom, ba, boom, ba, boom. Now with Constantine, what happens when this ceases and this happens? Big story, big, big story. Uh, but there's the over, there's, the, there's just the, from the bird's eye emperor's view. Now we gotta go back and go, okay, during all that time, how did the Christians uh, respond to all of that? Uh, what happened in the church? Because I said, almost nothing created more division than persecution did amongst Christians. And so we'll look at that next time. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this time. Uh, again, the opportunity to think back and yet to hopefully receive light from what has happened in the past. We thank you for preserving your church through all these ages. We ask that even in our age, we will be faithful to you in all things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.